If you were with us last week, you remember that Jesus just made a huge decision. He had spent a night in prayer, and then he chose those 12 who he would call his apostles and send out. Right after that happened, I want you to see something in Luke 6.17. We're going to read some familiar words. Luke 6.17 says, He went down with them, those 12, and he stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him in healing them all. Verse 20 is important. It says, looking at his disciples, he said, all right, so he just chosen the 12. He's got another crowd there around him. When it says looking at his disciples, we get the idea that right here, he's going to start to lay out what does it look like to be a follower of mine. You call yourself a disciple, what does that look like? What kind of attitudes do disciples have? What kind of actions characterize them? So he looks at his disciples. He said, words to them that I think sometimes when we read them, I don't know if you're like me, you read them and they sound almost sometimes like, it's almost like I'm Charlie Brown and I'm trying really hard to figure out what my teacher's saying. And all I hear is, because what Jesus is about to teach us are some really upside down revolutionary things that we don't accept very readily. Because our world is upside down in a sinful way. What he says makes perfect sense in God's kingdom. But we live in a world that's got it all backwards. We'll read them straight through and then we'll break them down. But see if you get any of that same reaction. What are you saying, Jesus? Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you. I don't hear any amens for some reason. When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And what day? The day when people hate you and exclude you and insult you. Rejoice and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Now just to make it a little more clear, every time Jesus says blessed, that's like a sanctimonious word today. It's more like this explosive outburst of of joy in the, the original language. Philip Yancey says, maybe it'd be better to say, how lucky you are to be poor. <laughs> how lucky you are that you're hungry. You know, it grates even more that way. But what does it mean? It's from the Greek word makarios. It's this happy, contented condition of someone to whom God has shown his favor. And it is not dependent on earthly circumstances. 
Let me say that again. Every time Jesus says blessed, you could say it means happy, but only in this sense. The happy, contented condition of someone whom God has granted his special favor, and it is not dependent on circumstances of this world. He goes on to have some corresponding woes. And the woes are not like the surfer. Whoa. They're <laughs> okay, it's a different kind of woe. <laughs> I think we knew that. I just wanted to say that. Um, it's this, more this expression of how terrible for you. It's an expression of pity for those who are going to receive divine judgment. So when Jesus says woe, that's what these woes are about. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And you're looking at this, and it is. It's totally upside down to our world. And you remember even how Jesus came into the world was upside down. We talked about that. The angels came to lowly shepherds and the king was born in a, a manger. And Mary had said what Jesus would bring would be upside down in her song. You remember that early on when she was pregnant with Jesus? Luke 1, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty I mean, he says, woe to all those people that have the things that we all long for in this world. And he says, blessed are you who have all the things that we all dread, right? <laughs> What's going on here? What are we to make of this in America? I met with Justin at Taco Bell eating a Mexican pizza the other day. I was, we were talking about how hard some of these are to process. You know, blessed are those who hunger. And here I am stuffing my face with the... One of three big meals that I'm going to have today. How do I even, in a, how, do I, how do I get this? Philip Yancey had some fun with that idea. Uh, this is satirical, of course, but something really happened back when Bill Clinton was president. This part's true. Bill Clinton was, was trying to figure out why his ratings were so low with evangelical Christians. So he invited 12 evangelical Christians to the White House, and he said, I'll give you each five minutes to share your perspective on my, my presidency. What, what am I doing wrong here? Or, or what can improve? Or what am I doing well? Philip Yancey, he didn't do this, but he said, I, I wondered to myself, he said, what if I were to go in there and, and give him a modernized version of the Beatitudes? Of course, this is satirical, but you, you'll see in this the difficulty of wrestling with this in our, our culture. This is his hypothetical speech. Mr. President, first I want to advise you to stop worrying so much about the economy and jobs. A lower gross national product is actually good for the country. Don't you understand that the poor are the fortunate ones? The more poor we have in the U.S., the more blessed we are. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And don't devote so much time to health care. You see, Mr. President, those who mourn are blessed too, for they'll be comforted. I know you've heard from the religious right about the increasing secularization of our country. Prayers no longer allowed in schools and protesters against abortion are sometimes subject to arrest. 
Relax, sir. Government oppression gives Christians an opportunity to be persecuted and therefore blessed. Thank you for the expanded opportunities. <laughs> you can see in there, he's being satirical, but what's he doing? He's wrestling with how do these principles fit in our country? What do we make of these? Some other people even look at what Jesus said. Sigmund Freud being one of them, the psychologists and other British psychologists, one of whom spoke to the Royal Society of Medicine in England and said this. Listen to their perception of what Jesus says here. The spirit of self-sacrifice which permeates Christianity and is so highly prized in the Christian religious life is masochism. Moderately indulged. Masochism. A much stronger expression of it is to be found in Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This blesses the poor, the meek, the persecuted, exhorts us not to resist evil, but to offer the second cheek to the smiter and to do good to them that hate you and forgive men their trespasses. The man finished his speech to that society of medicine. He says, all of this breathes masochism. So we're left with the question, is it masochism, what Jesus is teaching here, or is it profound wisdom? Yancey says, anyone who responds with a quick and easy answer probably has not taken the Beatitudes seriously enough. One of the things I want to propose here is the only way these Beatitudes make sense is if we view them with the proper worldview. If you view our worldview as a, a pair of glasses, if we have the right pair of glasses on, as to how we view the world in reality. That's the only way these are going to make sense. If we have the wrong pair on, it won't make sense at all. There's a silly example of how worldview can keep us from understanding an idea. You ever heard of the, the phrase YOLO? What's it mean? You only live once. All right, there's a funny meme out there right now on Facebook that makes me crack up every time I see it. <laughs> you only live once? Mario says, I don't understand. Why? Because that's not the worldview Mario has. Every time Mario dies, he's got eight more lives, right? He doesn't understand YOLO. YOLO makes no sense to Mario. And what I want to say this morning as we prepare to jump into the Beatitudes is that YOLO makes no sense to Jesus Christ either. This life is not all there is. There's an eternity and an afterlife. YOLO is why what Jesus says here in these Beatitudes makes no sense to many of us because there are some in this room that really do believe that this life is all there is. That's one group then there's another group of us that say we believe in eternity, but we still live just like this life is all there is, if we're honest. And I believe that is the big reason why we struggle to get at the heart of what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't understand YOLO because that's not what he taught. And I want to see three 
three ways I want us to look at that he's going to challenge our perspective, our worldview. He's going to, in three sets of blessings and woes, he's going to help us ask ourselves the questions, am I living for his kingdom or my own? Am I living for merely the present or do I have eternity in mind? And am I living primarily for God's reward or man's recognition? These are at the heart of what he's getting at in these Beatitudes. The first question, are you living for your kingdom or God's kingdom? Another way to say that, is life all about you or are you living for something that's bigger than you? We're going to look at each blessing which is with its corresponding woe. That first blessing for this one Verse 20, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Remember the question was, are you living for your kingdom or for God's? When Matthew records a similar sermon, and we don't know if it's the same one or not, because Matthew says it was a sermon on the mount, Luke says it was a sermon on a level place. So some people look at that and says he found a flat place on the mountain. <laughs> it's the same sermon. Other people say maybe this is a different sermon later on. But regardless, it's the same ideas. Luke's is shorter. And that's okay. He chose what he wanted to include. Matthew's is much longer, but the, the teaching is consistent. But when Matthew records this part, blessed are you who are poor, you know what he adds there? Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, in spirit. You know what it means to be poor in spirit? It means to admit and realize that I am not okay on my own. I need help. I need someone outside of me to offer something to me that I cannot give to myself. The opposite of it is pride. The reason the poor in spirit are blessed is God later says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? Blessed are you who are poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. John Newton wrote the, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Been redone countless times, most notably recently by Chris Tomlin. Probably heard it on the radio. John Newton was a slave trader. And when we talk about the importance of being poor in spirit and how it's actually grace that brings us to that place, there's a verse in that hymn. He, he had battled God for much of his life. He was a slave trader. He knew the guilt. He knew he was living in sin. And God slowly reached into his life and helped him see you need to turn around. And this is how he wrote it in that famous hymn. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Fear what? That he was going to spend eternity in hell apart from God, that he was sinful, that he was falling short of that relationship with God that he needed. Grace does that. That's poor in spirit. Sometimes brings us to some healthy fear. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, 
But it doesn't stop there. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Paul Tripp says it this way, grace will expose your weaknesses. We don't like that about grace because it's uncomfortable when we're staring ourselves in the mirror, right? But listen, not to embarrass and hurt you, but to make you pursue true strength that can only be found in Christ. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And that's why Jesus says those people are blessed. And the truth is in this world, sometimes when we're physically poor, it's easier for us to realize that. We don't put our stakes down in this world. We don't go out pursuing poverty. Jesus doesn't say there's nothing necessarily holy about being poor financially, but sometimes when we're in that state, we wake up and say, wow, I can't, I can't really put my roots down here because there's, and when we're rich, there's a danger. The danger is we think we can find satisfaction here and that's a dangerous place to be. He would later tell a parable in Luke chapter 12 to illustrate this danger. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd came to Jesus and said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I forget what Jesus was teaching right before that, but this this guy just totally interrupts. And what's it all about? Money. I want my brother to make sure he gives me my part. So what Jesus says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. What are you hearing there? A lot of eyes, a lot of bouts. All about me, right? Comfort. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. The sin is not having the money. Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. And he says, tell those who are rich not to put their hope in wealth, which is so Uncertain. That's the danger of it. The uncertainty and the way it fleets, the way our life passes on. You living for your kingdom or something larger than yourselves? I assume by now any hardcore Hobbit people have already seen The Hobbit 3. So, spoiler alert, in the third Hobbit, which we, we saw on our anniversary, which I was like, man, nothing says true love like watching a dwarven king stick a sword through an orc. It it was awesome. We had a great day. (laughs) 17 years. But in that movie, there's there's a picture of this. Thorin Oakenshield is the leader of the the band of dwarves throughout the series, The Hobbit. And throughout the first two movies and into the beginning of the third one, they're on this quest to get back to the mountain Erebor, where their kingdom is. And you see Thorin as this noble leader making sacrifices for his men. 
and his people to get them back there. And you see him risking his very life for them. You see a passion in his eyes. By the time you get to the third one, they get to the mountain. Something strange starts to happen once they get in there. There's, there's a scene where Thorin is alone in his piles and piles of gold, just walking around, moaning to himself, moaning things you can't even understand. And, oh, and, and the, his, his men are watching him, and you see them talking to each other, and he's getting the gold sickness. And several times throughout the movie, his men come to him and say, you've changed You've changed. They were saying, you used to care about something bigger than you, and now it's all about you and what you have. You have changed. Thankfully, their words get through to him, and he eventually steps out of that, that mindset and begins to fight once again for what's right and for the good of others. But that's a risk that we all run in this life, that we get so comfortable with the blessings even that God's given us, that we forget it's not about me, it's about God, and it's about others, and it's about His kingdom. We can get to the place of the church of Laodicea. We, we are deceived. Revelation 3, Jesus said to that church, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And here was their deception. Here's their mindset. He looks at them and says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent here I am I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me did you know those words were spoken to a church? I stand at the door and knock. But you know what? We're not going to open that door unless we realize we have a need for what only He can bring us. As long as we think we're okay without Him, we'll never open that door. That's the first one. You live in for your kingdom or the kingdom of God. The second one, are, are we living only for the present or do we have the things of eternity in mind? And as I read through these next two, I want you to look for the word now and the word will. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. You see the contrast built in there between now and eternity, future? Are you living only for the present or do you have eternity in mind? This is a big question. Paul would wrestle with this through many of his epistles. He had some strong words about this. 
in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, hey, if the dead are not raised, what's he saying? If YOLO is true, if YOLO is real, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I mean, Paul was putting his life on the line every day for Jesus. He's like, if, if the dead are not raised, why do I do that? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. But if the dead are not raised, here's what he says, if YOLO is true, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But when you read the rest of the New Testament and you look at Paul's life and Peter's life, <laughs> the lives of other followers of Christ, is that how they live? Did they live, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die? No, they, they gave it all for Jesus because they were not only living for the here and now. They had eternity in mind. So if you find yourself hungering for something more, you find yourself weeping right now, you will be satisfied. You will laugh. The Psalms say, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, sometimes it's not till we run into a road bump in our week. I, I know this from someone in my life this week that hit a, a hard moment, and I talked to him afterwards, and it caused them to slow down, turn on some Christian music, and they spent a half hour with God where he just filled them up as only he could. Nothing else in the world could have met them there. In their trial, they took their hunger to God, and, and he filled them. You too had lyrics a while back, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And a lot of people think what they were speaking of is, is there's this thing with Jesus where, as he said, I am the, the bread of life, I'm the, the living water, once you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. And there's that sense in which he is ultimately satisfying. But there's also this sense as we grow in our walk with Jesus that we always are hungering for more, right? Right? Don't you desire to be closer to him tomorrow than you are today? Don't you desire to grow in that relationship? If you're in that hungry place, that's a good thing. I'm telling somebody in the lobby, excuse me, Buckeyes moment, we're going to be in the championship, so I can't resist. They're going to be in the championship tomorrow. And Eric asked me how I think they're going to do. And I said, I think they're going to do awesome because when they're in the role of the hungry underdog, I didn't say hungry out there, but... The underdog. Underdogs are hungry. And that's what they are. They lost their first string quarterback partway into the season. Then they lost their second string quarterback. And with a third string quarterback, they won their Big Ten championship 59 to nothing. Then they beat Alabama in the playoff game. In the past, when the Buckeyes have been favored the previous two times they went to the championship, they lost. And I think something sometimes happens when you're the favored one, you lose that hunger. They're going in there hungry this year, and I hope it'll pay off in a national championship. When you're hungry, it causes you to grow. Paul's saying, Jesus is saying, excuse me, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Let that hunger drive you to Jesus. C.S. Lewis said this about this hunger that we have inside. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. You feel that hunger, let it cause you to lift your eyes to that other world you were made for and go there. When you look at the part about blessed are you who weep now, that's another verse that nobody's going to amen. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, listen to this. Solomon wrote something in Ecclesiastes that, that maybe I've thought about more than some because I've done a lot of memorial services as a pastor. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 2 through 4. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. You won't find that in many devotional books if you pull pull your devotional book out tomorrow morning. But what is it Solomon's going after? I think about it like this, like... Oftentimes, I go to a memorial service. And I leave that place thinking, wow, I don't know when my time's going to be. And I go home and, and I give my family a big hug. And, and, and God speaks to me. He's like, you need to forgive such and such a person. Or you need to be, stop being so short with such and such a person. Or you need to love that neighbor with everything you got because you don't know when their time's going to come. I, I leave with all these lessons that change my life because I'm reminded that this life is not all there is. That's why he says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. There, there's things to learn in our weeping. You've had that, haven't you? Walked changed forever out of a memorial service. That has never happened to me at a Buckeyes football party. I enjoy them. Nothing wrong with it, and I have a great time with friends and family, but I don't often come away with these deep nuggets of, wow, my life really needs to change. These guys, <laughs> I got to tell you how, how great our elders are. This is a side note, but I come in this morning, we've been talking about a renewed emphasis on prayer this year at the church next door, so Aaron comes up to me when I first come in today. <laughs> He says, hey, Scott and I were talking, and uh, we, we like this idea of a renewed emphasis on prayer, too. So what we'd like to do is meet the three of us tomorrow night at 630 uh, for a prayer meeting. You know what tomorrow night at 630 is? <laughs> I said, I'll be throwing up some prayers, but probably not for what you guys are thinking. <laughs> There's something to be said for those painful, painful moments in our lives that we can learn from that we couldn't learn at a football party. Not that the football party's bad, not that God doesn't want us to enjoy those things, but let's embrace the learning that comes in our weeping. Are you living only for the present or do you have the things of eternity in mind? This came up in Eric's life this week. A conflict of interest between someone thinking primarily about this world and someone thinking about eternity. He's got a friend who's nearing death and he's going to go to visit this friend and as he's talked to other people around the situation, Eric has asked him, does this person know where they stand with Jesus Christ? Have they trusted in him as their savior? Is their eternity secured? 
And the other people around it said, oh, we've got a sort of a running policy around here. We don't bring that stuff up near the end because we just want them, want them to, to rest easy. And as Eric and I talked in the lobby, we said, you know what? Their position makes sense if you believe this life is all there is. Why, why stir the pot? But if you believe there's a life after this one, Eric's position makes all the sense in the world. Because he's not living merely for now. He's living with eternity in mind. So I mentioned that as an example, but also to say pray for Eric as he goes as a messenger of truth and grace this week. Thank you for, for that example. The last one, are you living for man's recognition or God's reward? Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Saying you're in good company. That's how they treated Isaiah and Ezekiel and Elijah. That's how they treated Jesus. Verse 26, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. And isn't that what some of us spend our whole lives chasing? If I could just get everybody around me to like me. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Jesus gave some examples of this in his Sermon on the Mount version of this in Matthew 6. He said, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. It's not wrong if other people see or hear about it, but if your motivation is to be seen, he says, if you do to be seen by them, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. They wanted that recognition from people. They got it. God says, that's all you're getting. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I like that Jesus kind of leaves us wondering, what is that reward? Which do we want more? And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Hypocrite was from a Greek word. When, when the readers of this, original readers, would, it was the actors that they would go down and watch a, a Greek play. All the actors had masks that they put on. One person could play like 10 different parts in a, in a Greek play. And they were called hypocrites because they put a mask on. They're not really who they appear to be. That's what was going on with a lot of these people that Jesus is talking to. They pray not because they care about God hearing their heart or hearing from God. They, they just want people to watch. They're putting on a mask. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? To be seen by others. 
Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Are you living primarily for God's reward or man's recognition? As we close up here, you saw a couple times in there the idea they have received their reward in full. H.H. Farmer said this. This ought to ring in our ears throughout the week. He said, To Jesus, the terrible thing about having wrong values in life and pursuing wrong things is not that you are doomed to bitter disappointment, but that you are not. The terrible thing to Jesus is not that you will not achieve what you want, but that you will achieve what you want. Then you will be spiritually bankrupt and not even realize it. Another man said, you take what you want from life and you pay for it. Being satisfied with things of this world is its own judgment. Alexander McLaren says something that makes me think of the last scene of A Christmas Carol. If only we could all have a moment like Ebenezer Scrooge, maybe we'd take this to heart more. But he says, there's going to be a grim awakening for those who are satisfied with earth, those who do not suspect their own emptiness. There will be a day where they find that earth's goods are no solid food. There will be a day when nameless yearnings and sadness break in on their mirth. And if they could just see the dim world beyond, they would see their hands empty and their souls starving. That is why Jesus steps into our world with what sound like upside down teachings to say, you guys have got it upside down. That's why he says... Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. One more quote to close, C.S. Lewis. If we consider the unblushing promises of rewards promised in the Gospels, if we look at them, all the rewards Jesus lays out there, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Father, I am challenged by the words of your son this morning. I will be wrestling with them for the rest of my life. Uh, Lord, and I'm sure there are others in this room feeling the the weight of what Jesus said and and just the, the burden on our hearts to say, help us to know 
how to apply this in our lives this week. Uh, Father, I pray that your spirit would lead us to very practical application. Show us real life situations where we have a choice between my kingdom and your kingdom. Where we have a choice between living merely for now or having eternity in mind. Where we have the choice of caring more about pleasing men or receiving that reward from you. Lord, I pray for us as a group that many of us, as we pursue you this week, would, and, and for the rest of our lives, would come to know what that reward from you is. Lord, I know one of the ones Paul talks about, that there's a fellowship of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. When we stand with him, even when it's unpopular. Francis Chan painted such a beautiful picture of that when he, when he spoke of being with Jesus in his suffering and the, the eye-to-eye contact. If you could just imagine that for a moment. Jesus suffered for us. When we suffer for him, imagine the bond. Uh, Lord, backwards, upside-down truths, heavy, lots to think about. Please help us this week. Help us not to conform, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through your word. May we show the world that it's not your kingdom that's upside down. It's ours. In your name we pray. Amen.